Hello everyone, my name is Valerie Lennis and I'm a graduating senior at Housatonic Valley Regional High School. With the help of mentors, teachers, and fellow students, I've composed the following podcast entitled Housatonic in the 70s, Examining the Culture from the Voices of the Northwest Corner series. This was created using oral history interviews from 15 Housatonic alumni who graduated in the 1970s. The interviews were conducted by 11th grade students in Peter Vermillier's U.S. History ECE course in 2019. This podcast is also sponsored by the Housatonic Heritage Oral History Center at Berkshire Community College. Oral history allows us to connect with the past in a powerful way and to receive a firsthand account of aspects of life that have radically changed or have even stayed the same. In recalling memories from decades ago, our interviewees ascribed broader meanings to their experiences as Housatonic students. In reviewing the interviews of these 15 alumni, a general mentality of students entering Housatonic as freshmen emerges. They were intimidated, excited, and hopeful for a transformative experience. It is also apparent that during this time period, the tight-knit community of the school and the broader community provided guidance to incoming ninth graders. This is seen with Warren Pringle from Sharon. Um, my older brother who graduated here in 1968 said, Warren, if you want to be popular with girls, go out for sports. So I followed his advice and I went out for football, baseball, and wrestling. So that was, those were my thoughts. Among the interviewees, there was an overall agreement that the most significant memory from their time as a student was the lively school spirit and vitality. This might have been a result of the lack of technology allowing for more face-to-face contact or a product of the distinguishably close community and the support systems in the area. The community's tight-knit qualities seem to have led to a passionate school spirit that introduced dedicated traditions at the school, such as hazing rituals, as Warren recalls. Um, I broke my toe in a hazing incident here, and I was downstairs in the boys' locker room. For freshman football players, you'd have to strip, stand on a bench, they let you hold a towel, and they made you sing the school song. But while they, you were singing the song, they took a wet towel and, you know, like, hit you. And I got through the school song, but as I jumped, one of the upperclassmen pushed the bench over, so I fell forward, and I broke my toe. And I had to go to the emergency room and have my toe looked at. I am sure that neither my mother nor father ever called the school and said, my son broke his toe in a hazing incident, what's going on at your school? There was just, you play football, they haze you, it's fine. (laughs) So that's something. But for these interviews, it may have not been considered hazing or necessarily looked down upon. It was just a part of normal school life, as Jackie Rice from Sharon explains. Hazing, it was just, and you know, I was part of a bunch of freshmen who stood up and did it, you know, and they made the girls soccer team and the boys soccer team, I think the guys football team, we all stood up and we had to um, sing the school song. Uh, We had to stand on the tables. And back then, I mean, I don't know didn't seem to be a problem. I mean, yeah. I didn't think it was hazing back then. No. And I don't think it was meant as any kind of hazing. I think it was meant that you're a Housatonic, you should know our song. Yeah. It's you bringing up the colors. Yeah, yeah. It, it was totally school. It was, yeah. As shown through these dedicated traditions, strong school pride was not just normalized, but it was expected from students. At least among the interviewed group, most graduates contributed to the school spirit. For instance, Becky Thornton of Cornwall's participation at Housatonic was quite noteworthy. From when I was in high school, I was um, I used to dress up as the mascot, as the mountaineer, um, 
And actually in those days, you know, I actually had a gun that I carried as the Mountaineer and I wore a coonskin cap and the picture in the yearbook. But um, that, um, you know, those were days where you could actually, I don't think the gun worked, it was one of my brothers, um, but you could carry it without, you know, fear of what's happening now. So it was a real gun? It was a real gun, yeah. Thornton's involvement as a mascot was a rarity during these times. Having a female student take the sole position of mountaineer representation was surely something unexpected, especially considering that Title IX was just put into place in 1972, the opportunities for women were increasing in not just athletics, but in the new opportunities opening across the country. Not only did gender dynamics in the school differ at this time, but so did stigma surrounding firearms, as Thornton touched upon. These ideas were normalized and ingrained into school identity. I think that I was definitely more afraid of the seniors than the freshmen now. The freshmen now don't seem to, to really look at class structure at all. They, they don't really look up to the seniors as much as we did. I think we looked up to them as our heroes. And, you know, they were amazing um, academically, amazing sports-wise. Back when Hoosie was, you know, probably twice the size that it is now. And so um, it was a big school, and they were, I was afraid of seniors. <laughs> yeah. Jackie Rice, a current teacher at the school, notices the stark differences of Hoosie-tonic traditions and student dynamics. But the reasons behind these unique student dynamics are still questionable. Was it a product of the immense school pride at the time, or was the fear of upperclassmen a result of an intimidation factor that was ignored then? Regardless, students of the 1970s graduated knowing they had brightened and strengthened the school's identity. For instance, when Rice recalls what her peers did after high school, her descriptions are defined with pride, amazement, and nostalgia too. After college, well, several members of my class worked for the government either a Secret Service agent, CIA agent, FBI agent. Uh, there's probably 10 or 12 in my class that went on to be head of government positions. There's a lot of us who are teachers. Uh, Mr. Prindle was in my class. Right. Um, uh, Rick Cantelli, he's the guy in the suit over there. He's a, he, he's a CEO of Salter Bank and Trust. Wow. So I think a lot of us wanted to go out of the area for college. But then a lot of us return. When I go to um, big reunions, a lot of us live in the area. And, uh, I would say about half of my class went to college. The rest went into the working force. A ton of people went into the military. Um, and some are still in the military, in their career military. Uh, several of my friends, uh, lots of nurses, doctors, lots of, you know, landscapers and oh. farmers and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Too. It's a very diverse class. Though several of Rice's peers went off to do big things, start families, and even move out far for college or work, several of them returned back to the northwest corner of Connecticut to live out their lives. In fact, practically all the interviewees resided in the area, and a number of them are even faculty at Housatonic. They most likely returned to the region for the irreplaceable sense of community and support that the alumni elaborated on. As Thornton recalls, she treasured her time as a Housatonic student. Really having a, actually having a great time. I really loved high school. Um, I loved the friends, you know, the friends that I met, even, you know, seeing people here today. You, know, you might not have seen somebody in 10 years, and even though they might live here, but, you know, it's just like yesterday. Um, the fact that we were such a close community of people. You know, we all, you know, grew up in rural northwest corner of Connecticut and had a lot of um, 
you know, things in common. And so I think just, and you know, we, we felt pride in our school back then. Um, you know, we were proud to be a student at Hoosie. And it wasn't called Hoosie. We, I think we called it Hoosie Valley Regional High School, or we called it HVRHS. Throughout these interviews, it seems as if graduates' memories stretch farther than just their hallways or sports fields. But lessons were born out of their learning spaces and communities. During such a politically weighted time, the 1970s was a decade of significant moments and worldwide change. This energy transcended into the classroom, as Rice recalls. Uh, oh, sure. I think they encourage debate. I think they encourage you to think for yourself and to, you know, just be more worldly. I mean, we come from the, such a small part of the northwest corner um, that a lot of kids didn't get out of this area um, until college or until later, you know, after this. Given the political landscape of the time that was characterized by events such as the aftermath of the Vietnam War, the Cold War, the oil embargo, and Watergate, having a lively and engaged classroom during this was beneficial for learning. Though, for the interviewees, politics was not a priority in their high school years. When asked about how worldly aware students were at the time, Thornton responds that. Not very, to be honest with you. Um, it was, um, you know, Again, I think it's based on the fact that you know we were so tuned into our own personal surroundings and lives and what we were learning at, in high school that <clears throat> learning about what was, or paying attention to what was happening around the world wasn't, at least for me, wasn't my focus. Though, Warren Prindle's experience with this was an outlier among the group. His exposure with political knowledge was an interesting exception from Thornton and other peers. I can only speak to the kids that I grew up with in Sharon, and there was a group of us that were politically aware. And my father was a socialist, sort of half communist, but mostly socialist. So I grew up in a very populist, socialist household, so I was very aware. Um, is now a good time to add... <clears throat> President Carter became president in 1976, I think, and he gave a speech, and it was this amazing speech about reaching out to people and telling you what you needed to do as a citizen. And I was like really inspired by it. I was like, oh, this is so great. And then in the press, it was it was just lambasted, and I was I was disappointed because it meant a lot to me. His memories support the idea that a student's outlook on events seemed to be shaped by what they were exposed to or taught at home. Now, I wanted to mention this. My father was a businessman. You know, he ran an insurance company in a small town, so you know sort of everybody. My father was vehemently against the Vietnam War, and he and about... 12 other people would go every Saturday on the town green and protest. And he had a placard that said 45,000, because at that time there were 45,000 Americans killed. And at the time I thought, oh, that's just something my dad does. He just protests on the weekend. Now I realize that was very risky for him because I'm sure he was insulting a lot of his customers who were I think pro-Nixon uh, pro or pro-war. Um, so I, in hindsight, I really admire my father. And I, I don't have a copy, but there were pictures of my father and these like eight or nine or ten other people just sitting, standing there in the rain, 
holding these placards. So it was very, that was very meaningful to me. As exemplified by Prindle's experiences, the United States was significantly unique during this decade. Consequently, so was the northwest corner of Connecticut. The community at this time came across as supportive and united. Whether it was through the fiery spirit at the school or the lively protests on the town green, it appears as though the graduating class of Housatonic returned to pursue this vibrant environment years after high school. When asked whether she would rather be a student in the present or in the 1970s, Rice easily preferred one over the other. And why? The 1970s. Yeah. It was much bigger and it was a huge, huge school spirit. I mean, you can ask any of these guys, I and mean, the school spirit was just unbelievable. I mean, it was really. Yeah. It was. Everybody came to Housatonic. I mean, some kids, I mean, Hotchkiss didn't open for girls until my junior year. Oh. And so there was only boys there. Now, I had lots of friends who went to Salisbury Boys School and went to Hotchkiss or Berkshire. Or Berkshire. And then the Kent kids went to Kent and South right. Kent. Marvel, you know, Marvelwood was a little bit different, but, huh. um, but not as many as now. Almost everybody came to the high school. Um, unless your parents taught at one of those schools, you really didn't go. Um, it's not like now where a lot of kids want to go to the private schools. Yeah. Which is unfortunate for it us is. because, you know, we have such a great school and I think people don't think that as much anymore. There's this whole stigma against public schools. I think there is. It's a huge stigma against public schools. But back then, everybody went to a public school. Nobody could afford to go to, a, <laughs> you know, a prep school. Once again, Rice's everlasting admiration for her school shows when she defends it against public school stigmas. This attitude was seen amongst most of the graduates. In fact, it was a general agreement that they would rather be a student in the 1970s than present day. Uh, definitely in the uh, 1970s. I think we had it a lot easier than people, you know, nowadays. And, you know, I, I guess I can say that because I see it through my own daughters, you know, some of the things you've already mentioned. You know, the life was a lot more relaxed back then. We didn't have the pressures that the, the students have nowadays. Um, you know, you, you, you did the best you could and, you know, you, you went out and you had to get a job after high school but it you know it wasn't that competitive you know you were encouraged to do follow your dreams um, you know it didn't matter whether that dream was to be work in a restaurant and be a mom or dad or to go to college and you know become the president of the United States it really didn't matter you know it was you know follow your own dreams and um, now you know everything seems to be competitive no matter what you do sports are much more competitive you know what you do, what, what school you go to is much more competitive, you know, what, what career path you follow is much more competitive, how much money you earn is so much more competitive. Um, the drug issue is a big thing too, you know, back when I was in school, yeah, you know, it was around, but it, it didn't dominate people's lives, you didn't see people dying of heroin overdoses, um, you didn't have to worry as much about what your kids were getting into, you know, you had limited abilities, you didn't have the internet access, you know, where, which can be good and bad. Um. It seems as though each graduating class of high school leaves with their own distinct qualities and mark on the community. There was a like-mindedness among the students from the 1970s, that they could look back on high school and admire their time as a teen, cherish their community, and be grateful from where it got them in life. As one of the student interviewers at the Oral History Festival last year, this experience motivated me to reflect on my own time as a high schooler, appreciate Housatonic's culture, and recognize the importance of oral history and storytelling. 
especially now during the 21st century, where we have a wide array of technology and resources to collect information, we should appreciate that every day we are living through and defining our own history. Your lives are a part of history, and your local history society may be interested in hearing your story. This podcast is made possible through funding from the Housatonic Heritage in collaboration with the Housatonic Heritage Oral History Center at Berkshire Community College and Housatonic Valley Regional High School's Career Experience Program and the Social Studies Department. Special thanks to the HRHS alumni from the 1970s who participated in interviews and the ECE U.S. history students who conducted and transcribed them. Also, thank you to the podcast team that guided me in creating this episode, Dan Bognani, Judith Moncina, Peter Vermillier, and Mary O'Neill. Though only three alumni accounts were mentioned in this episode, the other 12 thought-provoking interviews are archived online. These will be found on a link on the Oral History Center website.